Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. As with anything major in life, things can become very daunting if you look at the big picture. But as soon as you focus on one part of it and fix that first, then go to the next part, and you just work your way down the ladder. It's the same thing with how you get here. You're not just going to sell everything you own one day but you're gonna start that thought process at some point and say, okay, I just wanna to migrate towards this direction. So what do I need to do in order to get there? Well, people ask me that all the time. The first thing I tell them is stop buying stupid shit. Greetings, everybody. I'm Captain Rick Moore from Sailing Sophisticated Lady and welcome to the Tom Rowland Podcast. What's up, everybody? i got a great guest for you today, Captain Rick Moore. If you know him from YouTube, he's got about 130,000 subscribers on YouTube. He's very popular. He takes his boat all over the place, and right now he is in Colombia. One of the things that I like to do on this podcast is to seek out people who are living life on their own terms, people who have found something that they're very passionate about and figured out a way to make a living at it, no matter how unlikely that is. We've done that with uh, people like Jessica Dixie Mills, who is now a professional backpacker, if you can imagine that, but she has done it. She's been able to figure out a way to do it. Rick Moore has been able to figure out a way to live on this sailboat, travel around and make videos uh, for YouTube, as well as doing some chartering and all kinds of other things along the way. We talked to him about this, this journey in his life and different places where he pivoted and changed his, uh, his approach or changed his goals. And you know what? I asked Rick about something that people ask me about all the time is, how do you follow your passion? How do I j- jump and do what it is that I want to do. I have a dream. I have something that I want to do. How do I do that? How do I do what you're doing? 
you know, and people ask Rick the same thing. And he offered some of the best advice that I've ever heard on this podcast. And uh, I think you're going to want to hear it. Um, check out this interview with Captain Rick Moore of the Sailing Sophisticated Lady. Captain Rick Moore of Sailing Sophisticated Lady, how are you today? Yes, sir. I'm doing well, Tom. And thanks for the invite. <laughs> hey, man. Thank you for taking time out. Um, are you in Colombia? Is that where you are right now? We are. We are sitting anchored in San Andres, Colombia. And it's a beautiful little archipelago just in the... Um, it's about 450 miles from Colombian mainland. So we're kind of out in the Western Caribbean Sea, also about 150 miles from Nicaragua. So it's very remote from everything. But we have beautiful weather here. We're below the hurricane zone, so we don't have to worry about big storms or anything like that. Nice. And it's sunny all the time. We just threw a bit of a rainy spell, but right now, you know, I mean, I've set up the boat to be fully uh, self-sufficient. So it produces all its own energy, water, everything like that. And it's the perfect location for us because we have a lot of sunshine for the solar panels and we have perfectly clear sun, or sorry, perfectly clear seawater under the boat for producing drinking water from ocean water. Wow. So tell me about your boat. Like I, I've been watching a lot of your videos and it seems like you, like you just mentioned, you're completely self-sufficient. You made a big solar transition sometime back. Uh, tell me about the boat. Well, the boat is a 1996 Genoa International and it was built in France. So, I mean, one of the things I really liked about the boat is that it was built before they started building them lighter, faster, cheaper. It's heavier, so of the same size of boat that they make now, this one weighs about 10,000 pounds more, but because this, the hull is solid fiberglass, there's no coring in it. All the bulkheads are solid. I mean, it's a very rock-solid boat. The rigging is way oversized for the boat. When I had it surveyed 15 years ago, the guy looked at it and said, I thought you were buying a charter boat because this thing's built like a tank. <laughs> I'm like, well, I like to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's what you need, right? I mean, where, have you, where all have you taken this boat? Uh, well, me and sophisticated lady, I've got about 100,000 sea miles on this boat so far. Wow. Most of it has been sailing back and forth to Canada. When I first bought it back in 2005, I moved aboard in May of 2005 full time and I've been on board ever since. Basically, that's when I sold everything and, you know, moved aboard and sailed off into the sunset, so they say. Wow. And yeah, back then I used to take the boat back and forth. Like I, I bought it in order to get away from the rat race, get out of Canada. I had big stretch issues. Doctor told me once he, you know, I was ending up in the doctor's office all the time. And he looked at me one time and he says, look, you never end up in the doctor's office and you're here like every couple months now there's an issue. So he gave me clearance. He said, you know what? You need to change your life. He says, you have two choices, stay here and die or go do something else. Really? So wow. I just said, okay, well, that's my cue. So I sold everything off. And yeah, I, I dealt with the, oh, you're crazy. You lost your mind. What happened to you? Well, yeah, I just decided I'm, I'd rather live out there than die here. So Well, and how, I, old a, how old a person were you when your doctor's telling you this? 39. Wow. So you were very stressed. What was making you so stressed? Well, let's let's just back up a little bit and kind of, would you mind <laughs> kind of taking us through your story? Because, you know, you watch the videos on YouTube. I've been trying to catch up. I'm a new, I'm a new viewer. Um, I'm fascinated with what you're doing and your story and how you're doing it. Um, but I don't really know any of the backstory. So how did you get so stressed? I guess, how did 
I mean, take me back to the beginning. Well, I mean, I guess the beginning of that type of thing always starts with personal relationships, love, marriage, kids, all the rest of it. And I met my first major girlfriend in high school at 15. And we were basically high school sweethearts. We dated for years. And, you know, but there was times in between where she was off with somebody else. I was off with somebody else. I just did not like life in Canada. I'm not a winter person whatsoever since birth. You know, I used to play in the snow. Okay, cool. I used to ski. Okay, cool. I used to love snowmobiling and all of that. It's just a great way to get stranded far away from home when your engine dies <laughs> in the cold. So I, don't know, I just got tired of winter sports and not being able to feel my fingers, you know. And even back then, I was always into remote control hobbies, airplanes, helicopters, all that stuff. And you can't do any of that for at least six months of the year because your hands freeze. So I don't know, just I decided that I wanted something different. And I hopped in my car one time and said to my friend, let's go down and check out Florida, just have a look around and see what it's like. You know, it's it was January in Canada, like the worst time of the year. And I just wanted to get out of the cold. So we went down and I was like, yeah. Yeah, this is for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nice breezes, palm trees, girls in bikinis, ocean, blue ocean everywhere, you know. I wasn't even thinking about boats at that point. I just did not like the cold. So at 19 years old, I first time I sold everything, put everything I had left in. I had two cars. One was a Chevy Cavalier was my first car. And the other was an old Porsche 914 that was in pristine condition. But that was my favorite. So... We loaded everything in the two cars. I got my buddy to drive my one car. I took the Porsche, took the roof out, and we zipped down to Florida. And I ended up staying down there for a year. I got a condo down there. And what, what and part hung of Florida? Out and, what part of Florida were you in? Just west of Fort Lauderdale. It was oh. called Plantation. Yeah, nice. Know it a little bit. So I spent down there. And then, of course, then I got familiar with the Keys, as you say. And my favorite place in the world was Key Largo and down in Isla Mirada Key. Yeah. So I used to go down there all the time, hang out at Kokomo on the weekends. We go down and camping at the Key Largo campground for weekends and then buzz down to the Cocoa Bar, Kokomo Bar, whatever it's called down there and, yeah. and just hang out. And, you know, that became my life for a year. But of course, I didn't know anything about green cards or anything. I just kind of moved in and said, yeah, let's just go. I just want to get it out of the snow. So I ended up selling off a lot more of my stuff just to keep the bills paid and stay down there as long as I could hold out. And then I ended up turning around and coming back to Canada. But while I was down there is when I spent all my time training in electronics, because at the time we're talking late eighties, I think. Yeah. And the big boom down there was big car audio systems. So I got heavy into automotive electronics because that was a passion of mine. Also, it was just, you know, car stereos and stuff. So I did a lot of training, made a lot of contacts, moved back to Canada and started my second business, which was auto acoustics in Kitchener, Ontario. So, well, that makes a little bit more sense because watching your videos, you seem to be able to fix everything or improvise everything, <laughs> uh, which I mean, if you own a boat or, or live on a boat, I'm sure that that is an absolute necessity, whether you're good at it or not, you're going to have to get good at it, but you, you seem to have a pretty good talent at it, be able to fix just about anything. Yeah, it's all about problem solving, just being able to analyze problems, you know, look at something and say, okay, if this is not working, then you break it down to why is it not working? Does it not have power? Is it broken? Is there a bad wire somewhere? What is it? You just have to break it down into individual components. As with anything major in life, things can become very daunting if you look at the big picture. 
But as soon as you focus on one part of it and fix that first, then go to the next part and you just work your way down the ladder. It's the same thing with how you get here. You're not just going to sell everything you own one day, but you're going to start that thought process at some point and say, okay, I just want to migrate towards this direction. So what do I need to do in order to get there? Well, people ask me that all the time. The first thing I tell them is stop buying stupid shit. You know, <laughs> most Good of the advice. things that hold people back, most of the things that hold people back are buying things they don't really need and racking them up on credit cards because they have credit available and everybody loves to live on the limit of their credit. That's a big problem. And that's what holds most people back from, you know, doing something like this. It wasn't really much different for me, except that I was lucky. I never got fully loaded and I was mounted. Or I was married to an accountant. So she didn't like debt much, and that was good for me. We only used debt when absolutely necessary. And I kind of used that to get started in this, because with auto acoustics, my first car stereo, it was car stereo and security. So that's what I was into is security systems. But it got me into working on boats also, because I had started uh, working on boats when customers would bring them in and say, hey, you know, I got this nice little racer, whatever, ski boat, whatever, I want to put a stereo in it, or I want to put a security system on it. And I started looking at these boats going, wow, this is pretty cool. I wonder what one of these costs. And we ended up getting a small one. I bought a, well, with my wife, we bought a Chaparral 21-foot little sporter boat. And it needed a ton of work, but I just stripped it down to fiberglass and redid everything from the bottom up. New interior, new paint job. I did it all in my shop. I had a good shop there with an air compressor. and So we sealed it all off one day and painted it up with this fancy paint job put a new stereo, full nude consoles, new seats, new engine covers, everything, and just made this like mini Don Johnson boat out of this little 21 foot chaparral. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's cool. And then did that, where does that boat take you? Do you want a bigger boat or do you want a different kind of boat at some point or? Well, yeah, we lasted five years with that boat, but we used to live in inside mainland. We lived in a town called Kitchener in Ontario and that town is landlocked. There's no water anywhere. It's between all the Great Lakes, but it's a long drive to get to water. And my family, in the meantime, had moved up to Barrie because they were into boats also. And they had a 24-foot boat up in Georgian Bay. So they moved up to Lake Simcoe, which was where Barrie is. That was where it became our hometown for our family. We moved up there, and they're still there. My whole family is still there because they all love it. But that was where I really got interested in the, the boating aspects of being able to go to remote locations, you know, take it out to places where nobody else can go unless you have a boat and go camping on shore because it wasn't a big enough boat to live on or anything like that. But that was always my thing, just being remote places, self-sufficient, on your own, quiet, just you and the mosquitoes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then at what point do you, do you look towards a sailboat instead of a powerboat? Well, about five years in, I started getting bored with the boat because, first of all, it was getting expensive to run. You know, you couldn't take it out for a couple of hours and it was $100 in fuel just gone. And that's something I did not like. I just never liked spending that much money on fuel for anything, even though I was considering, well, I'm bored. I must need a faster boat or something like that. One time when we were down in Florida, my wife and I, and we came across this 28-foot, uh, like a scarab. Yeah with twin 350s in it, and I thought, wow, I remember it was called Moon Dancer or something like that. Had some name with the moon, and I was always fascinated with the moon. I loved the full moon all my life. But we saw this boat on the side of the road, had a look at it and everything, and I thought, maybe it needs something like this, you know? But when I got back to Canada that summer, 
before I was really thinking seriously about doing any upgrades, a friend of mine took me out on a little boat that he had. It was like a 17 or 18 foot day sailboat, just a little, little tiny sailboat, you know, nothing but the rudder and the sails and just you and the sails. And he took me out for an afternoon and said, here, try this. Well, after an hour, I was hooked. <laughs> I was like, wow, no engine, no throttle, just you and the sails. Combine that with the tiller. And it was like a game for me, like a puzzle trying to figure it out, the mechanics of it and how the sails worked with the wind and everything. I was hooked. It took me about an hour. And then after that, he used to trade me. So I'd give him the powerboat for the day. I'd take the sailboat and I'd just go out and play around with it. And that winter, I decided, okay, it's time to sell the powerboat. And I put it up for sale just to find anybody who would trade any kind of sailboat for that powerboat. And I ended up trading it in New York across the border. I found somebody who had a, a really, like, I'd researched, you know, what was going to be a good boat to start with. And there was a few I was looking at, old Columbias and stuff like that. But I came across a Catalina 30. And it was my luck. I just happened to find this boat somewhere. But... Catalina was a really good name. It was a really good boat, like built boat. Uh, it's great coastal cruiser. It wasn't something I would have considered for offshore, but I wasn't thinking offshore at any stretch. I was just thinking something to learn sailing on. But I ended up trading in the boat, buying the Catalina, brought it back to Canada. Again, just stripped it down. I mean, I put seven years worth of work into that boat and it was perfect. I still have pictures just before I sold it. It was meticulous, but I did crazy stuff to that boat, you know, like replaced everything, all the windows with my own custom designs. And we cut the keel because the keel was too deep and I couldn't get into our yacht club after like September, which meant for two months I couldn't even go sailing. Yeah. So I was like, no, 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 that's not happening. Mm -hmm. So I just found out a place in Toronto called Mars Metals and they do lead work. They said, yeah, if you take this much off your keel, you bring us that piece, we'll melt it down with 30% more lead, put some bulbs together, you take them back and bolt it to your old keel. Sounds easy enough. <laughs> and how much draft did that take off? It took me from, uh, what was it? It was five foot 11. No, it was five foot four and I took it down to four and a half. Okay. Four and a half would get me safely in and out of the marina all the season so that I could keep sailing until the last possible day when they hauled that boat up. Nice. And then you didn't have, at this point, you didn't have any kind of ambition for taking it back down to like warmer weather or what? I mean, it, you were happy just kind of learning how to sail at this point or, or what? Oh, no. Yeah, that boat got me into the whole aspect of there is a possibility for indefinite sustained travel here. Wow. That's got to be a big moment. Like when you, when you kind of realize that, like, I don't know, in my life, as soon as I realized that being a fishing guide was a real job, I didn't know anyone that was a fishing guide. I didn't know anyone that sustained themselves like that until I was around a couple of people. And then I was like, wow, you could just do this. Like this is a job. And it seems like that's kind of the crossroads you come to there. Like this, you could just live on this boat all the time. You could just live on the boat. And the boat is much less expensive to live on than anything. It is a mobile house and it may cost you an investment up front, but you don't have land taxes. You don't have car payments. You don't have car insurance. You don't have all these other associated things, you know, like electricity, hydro, whatever. Uh, all these things disappear when you migrate to a boat. Now, the problem is you can't migrate full-time to a boat in Canada. So, 
hence the direction changes. Yeah. You know, I just started leaning towards, okay, well, what's it going to take to make this sustainable? <clears throat> Excuse me. And I started taking training uh, for long-term benefits. Like I decided, okay, this is something I would like to do in retirement. So I was always thinking ahead, you know, what am I going to want to do in 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And I thought, well, a great job would be captain of a sailboat down in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. I figured that that would be something I could do in the winter time. And in the summertime, I'd be a bush pilot flying people up and down into remote locations up in, you know, Muskoka up in Canada and Ontario. Were you already a pilot? No, but I was doing that at the same time. I was taking my captain's license for Marine and I was did that over several years. And at the same time, I was doing my pilot's license uh, for Bush Pilot. And, you know, I was enjoying the flying to a point. It was a thrill doing something that not many people do or get to do or able to do or anything like that. But to be honest, I just, it, every time I was up there, I'd be like, okay, I'm bored. <laughs> you know, you're up there flying around. Unless I was doing tumbles and turns and stall recoveries, that was the kind of stuff I liked. Yeah. That was fun. But you can't do that with a bush plane. So, but that's what I was training and enjoying. But then what happened was the company that I was taking my lessons for, they were prepaid up to almost completion. And we were halfway through the training and the company folded, went bankrupt, all the planes disappeared, everything was gone, and all my money was gone. I was like, I think that's a sign. <laughs> I wasn't meant to fly. <laughs> Yeah. So I put my focus back into the Marine side training and I continued training just while I was working. And I did about eight to 10 years of training just in Canada. And I would spend every weekend in the winter time in my basement. I made a room, maybe about the same size as the salon in this boat now, but with a 10 foot screen. And I used to have my friends over every Sunday and we'd have sailing day. So we'd rent a bunch of videos from down in Toronto where they had all the cruising videos. You know, that's where I used to have the shards and all these other the dash you offshore and all these videos that existed back then, but there was no computers, no internet, anything like that. So it was all VHS tapes. Mm -hmm. Now we would just rent like five or six VHS tapes from this bookstore down in Toronto and they'd send them up every weekend and we'd have a, you know, a crash party in my basement and just watch sailing videos. But we were studying stuff constantly, learning and absorbing all this material. And I'd watch the crazy stuff, the wit bread around the world races, the single solo sailing around the world, and how these guys would do it and how they sustain themselves, how they stay alive and stay sane. And what do they do in storm tactics and just mentally preparing yourself for all this stuff. And then, yeah, I became a storm chaser on Lake Simcoe. That's what everybody called me, the crazy storm chaser, because when it was blowing crazy, I'd be out untying the lines going sailing. They'd be like, what are you doing? I'm going sailing. They're all there putting extra lines, securing the boat so they don't blow off in the storm. And I'm like, no, this is windy, man. It's time to go sailing. Yeah. So I gained a bit of a reputation like that. and But that just kept me growing in that direction, migrating more and more and more towards this life on the sea, becoming prepared for whatever the worst was that the ocean was going to throw at me. Because I knew that there was one thing is going to challenge you is going to be the ocean. You can't fight Mother Nature. You just live with it and, you know, mutually coexist or you die. That's right. the basics. Yeah. So eventually that led to my wanting to upgrade to a little bit bigger boat. I'd already fixed this one up as much as I could possibly fix without going around and starting to redo all the stuff I'd already done again. So we got into a 36-foot boat because my wife is not really a sailor. She likes creature comforts and wanted a bigger, a little bit bigger. But 
at the end of the day, she just decided that sailing wasn't for her. She didn't like sailboats and she didn't like anybody who liked sailboats. And that's where it landed being in a divorce at some point. We just had the two kids. So, you know, I met her at 15. We moved in together at 21. We got married at 30, then had two kids and divorced by 36. So that's the story. Yeah. But she works in my family business. And at that time, I had migrated out of my business because she didn't like the ups and downs of being in our own business. She wanted me to have a steady paycheck. So I started working with my family business, which is still um, in Barrie, which is uh, it's a water treatment business called Aquamart. And she's the accountant for that business. And so I ended up, you know, we're divorcing and going through all these battles and all that stuff and still working together every day. So that was very stressful. And at the end of the day, I'd, that was when the stress started building up at that 36-year-old age. And then by 38, 39, it was like over the top. And it was just like, okay, got to leave. Yeah. So when you decide on this exit plan, had you, you've already upgraded to this next boat that, is it the, the sophisticated lady that you're in now? Or is it another boat? No, that came soon after the doctor's warning. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you upgrade the boat and then let's talk about that transition. Like you're now you're going to make this exit plan. Like I, the doctors warned you and you're, you're going to heat it. And so then what comes next? You go straight for the, the Caribbean or what? Um, I think I did a kind of an introspection or, you know, just examine your life for a month or so deciding what do I want to do? You know what? I, I got to do something different. I could go back and just start another electronics business or something, but what's that going to do? It's still going to keep me in Canada here. And that's half my stress is just being not able to do what I enjoy, which is go sailing, being on the water, being just out there on my own, doing something. You can't do it for at least six months of the year. And that's very hard on well, somebody like me. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It it just evolved from there. And I finally started thinking, well, I got all this training. Why don't I put some of this training to use? You know, what am I waiting till retirement to get to be a captain in the Caribbean? I started researching, well, what do people do with sailboats in the warm weather being the Caribbean? We had always thought originally that we just take the boat for a year down to Bahamas, test the theory, see how it works, come back, go back to work, you know, and then plan long term from there. But then I discovered, well, going to the Bahamas for me was a short-term thing. It was never going to be long-term, and you can't stay there during hurricane season, and it's too friggin' cold in the wintertime because they get cold fronts every three, four days from Canada blows down there. So that's just not my thing to be still sitting down there wearing sweaters and foul weather gear. So I started looking a little deeper and going further and examining the Caribbean, and that's when I discovered the charter business in the British Virgin Islands. And I thought, okay, now we're talking. That's something I could live with, and that was a very popular area. And Lots of people interested in going there to charter. So I started year, looking what, at what kind of boats. What year is this? This would be 2004. Okay. So way before the internet, like probably as we know it today. And, and where are you getting all this information that, you know, how to, how to do this and, and what it takes, what kind of qualifications or, or red tape you got to go through to, to join that fleet down there? Well, again, still renting videos and stuff, but now, now on DVD, not VHS. Yeah. So times evolve. One you know. step closer. <laughs> <laughs> One step closer. But the internet was around, so we did have access. Uh, not like we do now, of course, but there was some access. And I was able to find how some of these businesses were advertising their businesses on the internet and with websites. And, you know, 
pictures, some videos and stuff like that. So we started researching all these boats that were working full time in the British Virgin Islands and doing what I wanted to do. Then I started looking at, okay, what kind of boat is it going to take to do this? How much is it going to cost me? And can I really afford to do it right now? Well, obviously I couldn't because I just come out of a divorce. Uh, and I had a new boat that, you know, we just bought not too long ago, still had a bit of a mortgage on that. So I started looking at options. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And I found a boat. I mean, I found a couple of different boats. One of them was way out of my price range, which was this one. It was way beyond what I could have afforded in any scope of reality. It was worth like, you know, almost three times what we paid for our house. <laughs> but the owners of the boat had had it for years and the wife hated it. She didn't like it. They went down to the Bahamas and did that circuit once, you know, or twice, maybe. I don't know. But uh, she was tired of it. They wanted to get back to something smaller because she was a smaller girl also and had real problems with the size of the boat, trying to find handholds when it was bounced around on the sea and everything. So it came up for sale in January of, well, January of 2005, yeah, basically, is when I found it uh, listed at one of the boat shows. I'd been on the boat previously that summer before when we were just randomly looking around at boats just to get a feel for what these size of boats were like inside and what they cost and that kind of thing. And I remember being on the boat and I was like, no, this is way too big. We couldn't do anything with this. Like, It's just so much empty space in it and everything. What are you going to do with this? But, you know, we're focused on 44 foot, 45 foot. So when I came across this boat and it was like way out of the price range, I was like, no, just get it. Move on. Next boat. <laughs> but then it came available at the, the, the Toronto International Boat Show in January. And I knew the brokers because they had listed it with the same broker that I had bought my previous boat from. And they said, you know, the owner's kind of desperate. They just want to move the boat. So you should have a look at it and we'll offer you yours as a trade-in. That way, you know, because at the time you could offer a trade and you don't have to pay any tax on that trade value, which also is a considerable savings for me. So I did go look at it and the broker was like, man, you got to be interested in this boat. We showed up on a sun, I think it was a Saturday or Sunday morning. It was minus 30 Celsius blowing like crazy. It was freezing cold. And even the broker was like, I don't really want to go to this boat right now. Do we really have to go? <laughs> <laughs> but we went cause we drove all the way down and you know, I had a bunch of people with me cause we were examining a little closer this time and filming the inside to see what it looked like. So we just came inside the boat and checked it all out for about half an hour and then left. But anyway, the long and the short of it was, yeah, we did end up making an offer. The offer was still beyond what I could afford, but it was still subject to finance and I needed financing. So, and I needed to do that on my own because I was divorced and working on my own and in my own business doing, you know, just making my own money. So I kept going to banks, going to banks, going to banks. No, 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 but I'm never one who gives up. And that's another thing, you know, if you want something bad enough, you just never give up. You find a way. And it's been like that through my whole life, from my first business till even where I am now. I finally found one and they examined it and said, okay, sure. Yes. Boom. So they signed the papers. I gave the deposit. We made the deal. Everything was ready to go. And as soon as I knew everything was rock solid and nobody could back out of anything, I put in notice and quit my job. And that's when people think you've lost your mind. 
A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Yeah. Well, that that is a... Uh, so you've got a bunch of different kind of people around you. You've got these guys that have been hanging around on Sundays watching sailing videos, and then you've got the rest of the people around. Did you get two different um, kind of reactions from these guys? I mean, are, are the people that are watching sailing videos with you, are they super happy about what you're thinking about doing, or do they think you've oh, lost your mind Oh, they're super happy. They think I've lost my mind, but they're still super happy. They're still like, go, Rick, go, Rick. Yeah, crash or burn, you know, it doesn't matter. Just do it. Because I was like, all right, I'm putting everything on the line. If it works, I'm going to try it for a year. If it works, I keep going. If, ever, if we don't like it, it's not working, well, what's the best, the worst thing that happens? We come back, we sell the boat, we lose the mortgage, we go back to work. I've lost a year, but at least I tried. Yeah. That was my mindset at the time. I mean, I knew I still couldn't do it on my own. This is an expensive boat to run. So, I mean, at the time, I qualified for the mortgage, but that paid for the boat. Now I had to find a way, how am I going to pay for the mortgage? Right. So I started looking for partners, people who would be interested after I'd already made the commitment. So everybody knows, all right, he's in this, he's serious. And I found, um, well, a couple of people that are interested, but one was a friend that I just met in Barrie and he's actually a doctor in Barrie. So he kind of understands what drove, what drove me to make this decision in the first place. And he's like, yeah, I can see the drive in this guy. And I think he's driven to success. So he was willing to become my partner and his name was Charles Vanderwater. And he ran a practice in Barrie for many, many years. He just retired this year, actually. But he was the one that signed up and said, yes, I will give you your funding capital to keep going for the first year until you get the business moving. And then we'll see what happens and reassess. Hmm. So he put in the funds to help me keep the business going, which allowed me to buy the things that we needed to upgrade the boat, make the mortgage payments, keep us fed. We weren't looking for much. Like I was living not lavishly at all. We were living, you know, budget basement, like as low as we could just to keep things going and get the boat down to the British Virgin Islands and get set up. And we did our first few charters that year and made a few, like we did a good few charters, got some good reviews and that helped lead into the next year. And no, everybody was happy. I was happy. He was happy. You know, it takes a long time for business like this to get rolling and actually become profitable because, well, we came out of nowhere and we went into places where nobody you know, they're not expecting us. They don't know we're coming. And we had to set everything up from scratch as we went. But we just kind of feel our way through in the dark. And eventually we found our way. So unfortunately, in 2007, world recession hits. Right. And the tourism business is the first thing to just go straight down the toilet. So, yeah, we ran into some big trouble then. And I just about lost the boat several times to the bank. But you know, even my parents, their business was stable up here because it's in kind of a, a life necessity type business with residential water treatment, drinking water, all that kind of stuff. And they didn't want to see me lose everything. And they came to the rescue a couple of times and just said, okay, look, don't let the bank take it. Just make whatever is necessary. Keep it going and keep doing what you're doing. Just keep putting it out there, putting the business out there. And I did. I mean, I was doing that anyway. They told me to just keep going, you know. At that time, they were still telling me to don't give up. And eventually, after so many years, they were like, when is he going to give up? <laughs> <laughs> That's what my dad said. He was like, my dad says, uh, uh, people told me I should take my, my son fishing when he was a kid. 
And then he thought, maybe, maybe I should have taken him to work a couple of times. Uh, that's his, that's his dad joke that he tells all the time. But, uh, uh, that's how I ended up being a professional fisherman, I guess. Um, do you remember your first charter? Like the first one? Yeah. Yeah, very well. Did it go well? Yeah. It was a last minute Christmas charter and it was a retired couple from the States and they flew down. They just wanted something last minute. We were available because we were new and they decided to give us a chance. You know, the brokers would offer us at a discount because we were new and they wanted to find out how we were. So they said to the people, look, this is a new boat, new couple. We need a review. So you tell us good or bad, just tell us what happens. This will give you a discounted rate. And they came down and tried the boat out and we looked after them. They had a, apparently a great time. They gave us a five-star review, left us a 20, 25% tip at the end of the week. And, you know, which in the charter business is really good. So we were very happy. The charter agency was very happy and they started recommending us more and putting us out to more of the the charter booking agents all over the world. Nice. So, and we start getting a few more charters. I think the first year we might've done four or five. It's not a lot, but again, like I said, it takes a long time to build a business. You got to build a reputation. Nobody wants to spend eight, $10,000 on an uncertain element right this is their once a year holiday so it's very important to them not so much the boat the boat can always be good or bad you can usually tell by previous reviews or anything but the personalities you're going to be with on the boat that's the important thing because who you're hanging out with is what's going to make or break your vacation right and you basically become their best friends for a week so it's a very very exhausting job because yeah. you know not only are you looking after the boat you're looking after the meals cleaning the cabins making sure every something breaks on the boat everything stops until i fix it and i would be where my crew would have to take them ashore go do something else while i stay behind and work on whatever the problem is yeah it never stops but, never no it stops. never stops unlike the fishing business where you know we pick their people up at five o'clock in the morning drop them off in the afternoon you know, we, we have similar issues. Like you got to fix the boat stuff, always breaking. You've got to fix that, get it prepared, ready to go for, for the next day, get your tackle ready, but you're doing that all by yourself. You're eating dinner with your family. Uh, what you're talking about that never stops. Like you're, no, you're constantly never stops. entertaining. You're holding their hand constantly from the moment they wake up and waiting for their coffee until the moment they go to sleep because they've passed out from drinking and, you know, just everybody parties on the charter boat. So you got to be careful of that too. You can participate to a point, but you got to keep distance from it because you still have responsibilities and your main responsibility is to make sure while they're partying, getting drunk, having fun, falling down, they don't fall off the boat and drown. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a constant issue, especially in the afternoons when they're out drinking and partying and everything, getting in and out of the dinghy. That's where a lot of accidents happen in the charter business is just getting in and out of the dinghy, which is your family car, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how long did you do this before you kind of move into your next venture of the YouTube channel and the things that I'm kind of catching up with now? Well, 2010 is where it all started to transition because 2007, that recession forced me to start looking at other options because tourism was gone for two, three years minimum, you know, just like now they killed it in a day and who knows how long it's going to be gone. It was exactly the same because the first thing people lose as as a recession approaches, they start feeling their funds starting to decrease slowly as the recession approaches, they lose their holidays, their vacations, all that kind of stuff. So that's what my business was. I had made the one tragic mistake of putting all my eggs in one basket. The first thing they teach you not to do. But I did anything it took to get out of that life in Canada and just do something different. And that was kind of the expense, you know. 
So that made me quickly realize, all right, I need to focus on some other talents here and something else that I can do. And that's where I started focusing on video because it was around that time in 2007 is the same year YouTube launched. So YouTube launched the same time as the recession started moving in. And I started using YouTube just as a platform to put up some of these little video clips of stuff, you know, around the boat, life on the boat and stuff we'd be doing with guests on board. A lot of just animated picture shows at the time, really. And just putting them up on YouTube so that I could, I needed a place to host videos because you couldn't just put a video on your website. Right. right. Wasn't capable of it back then. YouTube was like, all right, I can put a video on a website and posted there and embedded in my website. Right. And this point, it's all kind of to enhance your charter business. Like once these, once tourism kind of ramps back up, I'm going to have a head start back into this by using these videos and stuff. Is that that? No, exactly. No, I was using it even when it hadn't ramped up. I discounted the charters and started approaching a different audience just to, you know, no more luxury charters. That was way out of everybody's budget. I just said, you know, let's go sailing with Captain Rick. So that's what started happening around 2008 and nine. And, you know, that's when I was just doing charters for people for three, $4,000 instead of eight, nine, $10,000, no food and all that. They come down, they're part of the experience. They start looking after themselves. They do their own cooking or they eat on shore, whatever they want. I'm a captain. I take them around anywhere they want to go and keep them safe and make sure the boat's safe. I make weather decisions every single day. I say, okay, well, today it's going to be like this. So our best two choices are here or here. You can do this here or that there. What do you prefer? And then we go based on their decision. So there was no set in stone itinerary. All my itineraries were very fluid. We had different options all the time, just depending on what the people liked and what the weather was like. And it kind of grew from there, but that's where the videos started gaining more attention on YouTube than on my website. I was just using the website to show people, this is what you're going to do on my boat. This is what life is like on Sophisticated Lady. And but then I started looking at these statistics on YouTube and this video's got like 30,000 views, 50,000, 60,000 views. Where'd that come from? It ain't my audience. <laughs> then I started realizing there's this whole other audience of people searching for videos on YouTube. I never envisioned it as being something like that, but right. that's what was happening. It was that year, I think 2009, maybe 2010. I don't remember when. YouTube approached me when they were setting up their new partner program now because they wanted to get their creators involved in the building of the platform. So I was like a ground roots partner. They sent out these emails and said, do you want to be part of our partner program? If you do, we'll split revenue with you. We're going to put ads on your videos because people obviously like watching your videos. So we want to include you in the program to start and see how it goes. So I was like, hell yeah, sure. Give it a try. Anything that makes money at that point is like, yeah, give me $5, $10, $50, doesn't matter to me. But after that, I kind of forgot about it. It was just a matter of like answering an email and then nothing happened. Right. But YouTube was doing it all in the background. I didn't even know it was happening. I just kept posting videos and wasn't worried about monetizing or anything like that. Well, not even thinking about it. But I started getting these emails all the time. Like I always got a lot of spam and everything, but I started getting these emails say, Hey, we have money for you, but we need to know your account. You need to hook up your account. So we, I'm like, yeah, right. I'm going (laughs) to give you my account. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) No, I figured it for sure. It was these phishing scam or something looking Yeah, log in here and put in your account information so we can send you money. And like, yeah, okay. But it started happening regularly. And I said, all right, that's the same email I got at the same time last month and the month before that. So I started looking at it thinking, 
all right, well, I'm not going to log in from this email, but I'm going to go log into my other account and see what's going on. And sure enough, I logged in and YouTube was like, yes, we have $1,000 here waiting for you. We need your account information. I'm like, that can't be real. Yeah. I mean, it's $1,000 for me. That was a huge amount of money at the time for something that I didn't even know was coming. So I said, okay, well, I linked my account. And sure enough, about a week or so later, there's $1,000 in my account in Canada. I'm like, holy crap. It's real. When did this happen? <laughs> when? How did this even become possible? And that's when I started really focusing on uh, making more and better and different content for YouTube. And I started studying the stats. I've always been a numbers guy. So I follow statistics a lot. I mean, one of the businesses that I did just before we got divorced was uh, stock trading, like day trading. Uh, I love trading tech stocks and they're running and everything. And I was just a numbers guy. I could get in and out 10, 20 times a day and always come out of the day with a couple hundred bucks or something. So for me, that was worth it. But the same thing applies to YouTube statistics because it's all following human emotions and what they react to, what they don't. And YouTube would give you information on how to track your videos, how much of the videos people are watching, what parts of the video are they watching. Sometimes they're re-watching certain parts. What parts are they? What videos are more popular than others? Why? Where are people watching from? What countries? How much time of it are they watching? All this stuff. So I'm like, okay, numbers. Now I'm talking. <laughs> So I just started playing, working the numbers, analyzing them, everything, and then just started refining because I was always very good at SEO also. That was one thing that kept my website above all the rest of them in my initial years of chartering in the BVIs is I used to upset a lot of the other charter brokers because I was taking over the, the search terms, the popular search terms for the business, yeah. but because I was good at it and I could do it myself. I wasn't paying anybody else. It's, it's been like that my whole life. You want to learn something, you just learn it. I don't need to go to school, sit there and listen to some guy writing on a chalkboard and taking a test. You want to learn it, you learn it in real life. The books are there, the information's there, the internet's there. You study what you need to learn, you learn it. That's it. So I did the same thing with all of those things. And that's what kept me alive, basically, just through all of these transitions. Just the ability to just realize you don't need somebody to teach you. You can just go figure, figure it out for yourself. Yeah. That's awesome. And I did. Yeah. And that just kept YouTube building and building and building. And in 2012 is when I renamed everything, branded everything ambient real life. Because to me, it was all about, well, ambience of real life, experiencing things that people love to dream about and think about, but never get to experience for whatever reason, because they are stuck, you know, working in a cubicle up north in a job and crappy job, no windows outside or anything like that. So I'm like, okay, well, let's start providing some of these people with an escape. Something they can tune into for five minutes a day and just watch something and listen to beautiful sounds of waves on the beach or wind yeah. in the trees or waterfalls and that, stuff like that. That seems like a big pivot right there, like a, a, a place where you, you decided, okay, I'm not promoting the charter business anymore. I am purposefully going to change from that. I don't expect these people to come. I just want them to watch this video. That seems like... That seems like a, 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 you, you made that change, you know, you thought about it and made that change into that type of production. Yeah, that was an event that was, excuse me, that was very much an investment of the mind because I realized in one day that for every one person I can actually have on the boat that's willing to pay to be here, there's a thousand people at home that will never be able to get here, but would like to experience the same thing in a virtual way. 
So I aptly back then, I don't think anybody heard of it, but I named them the armchair sailors. Okay. <laughs> so I decided to chase the armchair sailors because with them, I could attract tens of thousands of people to view the videos and experience them. And they're not paying me for the videos, but I realized that, okay, YouTube is going to pay me for having people come to my page and view these videos. So the two of those became a marriage. And then I just kept focusing on it. And the first vlog style video, like everybody kept saying, like I started getting comments in some of the early videos, love this, love this, but we want to know who you are. Who's Rick? Who is this guy? Who's the guy filming all this stuff? What's your story? So that prompted me to start feeling like, okay, they want me to turn the camera on myself. And I didn't like that idea at all. You see some of the first videos you can see, I'm like, greasy, sweaty, and just like, oh, just I don't like talking to the camera. This is not fun. But, you know, I started just telling the story and talking about things I was working on and how my vision was and what I wanted to do and all that kind of stuff. That's when more people started paying attention and watching and the audience grew in much more different directions. Now, you, so, have, a, you have a background of some sort in film, right? In production. No, just a hobby. Just something, just like all these other things. You just taught yourself how to do all this. Yeah, I was just a guy. I always had a camera in my hand. Yeah. And so, but one of the things that I like about the way that you do your videos, and, and certainly I'm starting from the, the most recent and working my way back, and I tried to watch <laughs> a whole bunch of different ones on the way, but you just talk to the camera just like just like you're right there, like you're talking to a friend. And I think that's probably one of the things that, that people really um, like about it the most. And then there's a story. Like each video has a little story. Like what it, it might be as simple as this is what we're going to do today. We're going to fix the fix this thing that's broken or, you know, we're going into town or whatever. But you, you, you do have like a seemingly like a production mind. You're able to kind of pr create a storyline. You're able to talk and, and narrate this thing really well, just, just very naturally, like you're just talking to a friend. And I guess that comes from being a captain and being, you know, the hospitality of having these people on the boat and you are constantly making new friends and talking to people, but that's the way it comes off on, on, you know, through the, through the computer. And I think that's why well, so many people like it. I think it was 2013, 2014, when that transition happened, where I started becoming much more eased around the camera because like you said, I, I started teaching myself because I was reading the comments and the comments, I wasn't getting bad comments. There was nobody saying, Oh, you need to do this different. or Don't do that. That's horrible. Or any stupid stuff like that. I was getting people that were like, Hey, it's so nice to meet you and hear what you're talking about and what you want to do. And it's really, you know, it's cool. We like it. It's like, you're doing something that none of us can do right now. And many, very few people have done. And I'm just talking about it. But that, that was when I transitioned in my mind to, okay, I'm not talking to a camera. I'm looking at an eye camera that is, it's the link to my new friends. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm talking to my friends when I'm talking to the camera and that's how it worked in my mind after that. And then from 2014, that's how it's been ever since. And now, you know, I have Madalena with me now and she's not comfortable on cameras either, but she's migrated a lot recently because she realizes that the audience loves they to do. hear her talk they, and they see they love her and she's very confident about that now and she loves to talk to them back now so she realizes i told her you're not talking to a camera talk to your best friend right right here it's your best friend you yeah. just focus on you and just pretend you're talking to your best friend in italy because you know she's going to be watching also right 
Yeah. Well, and that she, relaxes comes off, you. she comes off great on camera. And then your son also travels with you. Is that, tr- is that correct? Yeah, no, he's been down many times and both my sons were down last uh, October. So they were here for a month, traveled around with me. We did the whole coast of Panama and all kinds of cool things. So they like that. They went back to Canada because my one son, he was taking holidays from his new job. He just graduated university and started in a robotics job. That's Justin. And Brendan, my oldest, he's the one that's been down several times because he has always taken an interest in computers, animation, graphics, you know, video, all that kind of thing. So he took a natural interest in what I was doing. And he doesn't like, you know, being on YouTube or being in cameras that much either. He's very shy, but he's very, very good at what he does. Yeah. So I said, well, if you want to work with me, I mean, this is something we're working together with. And I give him a percentage of what we do and say, this is what we're doing here. We're going to make these videos. And I give you a percentage just because you're helping offload some of my work. So you can focus on other things. Nice. Yeah, he was happy with that. He had his graduation in college. He didn't need to do. He was. Well, he had started off in uh, mechanics and machine work and stuff like that. But he's like, no, nah, I really prefer working on animation and graphics and stuff like that. So my job keeps him working on stuff that he enjoys more mm-hmm. and he can do it at home. So he really likes that as well. He's got a job that he can take with him anywhere. So when he's down here, if he travels anywhere else, he can just take his laptop and he can always do the job. Right. Did he do the animation and graphics on, on your, on your channel? Oh yeah. He's done all the, yeah, all the nice. animations and everything. So it's really nice. Uh, it, was, it was one of my original crew that designed the SSL logo, yeah. the lady. The, lo- the logo was designed by Jordan from Nate and Jordan, which are Expedition Drenched now. But they came here before they were on YouTube. And they were my original crew for, I think, maybe, what, four or six months, something like that. Okay. And they were the ones that we started off in SSL001. So Very I cool. started that series with them. And then they migrated into their own thing. But the logo, back to the logo, yeah, Jordan designed this logo. And Brendan got his hands on it and started just putting it into his computer's graphics program and making a 3D version of it in 3D space and putting different materials on it, making it look different, seeing what was cool, rotating it. And he came up with these animations that I've used ever since. I love them. The audience loves them. We get comments all day long about, man, we love the logo, the intro, all that stuff is really nice. It's very nice. It's very nice. And that's... That's all Brendan's handiwork. So he has all that kind of stuff. He's done a lot more than that, but that's the one that everybody knows of for sure. Right. So as this, uh, as this kind of matures and, and, and you, you've gone through a couple of pivots that we've talked about, like from the charter, well, from Canada, then to the charter service and then to like, okay, now I'm like an entertainer. I'm, I'm going to like have these YouTube videos. And instead of trying to encourage one person to come and, and pay me for a charter, I'm talking to tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people and getting paid by YouTube and that kind of change changes everything. And then when I go to your Patreon, uh, I look and it says my goal is to be able to work on SSL full time, producing one video a week consistently. I don't know how long ago you wrote this, but uh, and and your ultimate goal is to be able to enter the Pacific Ocean as a self-sustainable vessel in all ways, including financially. So is that where we are today as you're making your way there and that's how that leads you to Columbia. Yeah, that's the transitional period that we're in now. We were before lockdown and COVID and all this stuff happened, we were in Panama and we were doing our last sale. I had made up the last sale 
Uh, it was going to be our last charter with guests on board, friends, whoever wanted to book. And that was for the month of February. So I booked out the cabins. They went very quickly. And we did this travel for four weeks with these guys on board that just wanted to come and sail with us. So that trip ended here in San, San Andres in Colombia. We dropped them off here. And we were coming up here because, well, we wanted to show it to them because it was one of our favorite islands ever. And it was also, it's a duty-free port. So it's the one place I can come and receive packages from the States with no duties or taxes or anything like that. Receiving stuff in Panama is enormously expensive and complicated. And that's assuming you even get it because there's a lot of hands in the way that sometimes your packages disappear. So we decided to ship everything up to San Andres, come up here, meet it, drop off our guests, let them see the island. And two days after we got our packages and the guests were gone, lockdown happened. Yeah. And we were supposed to just turn around and go back to Panama. So we thought, all right, they're locking this island down. We better get out of here. We're not going to get back and get through the canal in time because we're supposed to go back to Panama, go back to Shelter Bay Marina, get the boat hauled out, do a quick bottom job with paint and everything, put it back in, go through the canal, and we'd be in the Pacific in time to prepare for the trip across to French Polynesia. So this was all going to be preparations in March and leaving across the South Pacific on April. Inevitably, we ended up stuck here. And I say stuck. I mean, yeah, we were disappointed for a while because we watched every day go by realizing, okay, the deadline's gone. We can't cross the Pacific now. It's not happening this year because once cyclone season rolls in the end of April, early May and June, it's like you just don't chance it. It's not worth the risk. So we knew, okay, well, now we got a year to kill. So what are we going to do? Well, four months, almost five months later, we're still in San Andres. There's been opportunities we could go back to Panama, but Panama, you know, as much as we can get stuff done there, there's still, how do I say? I don't want to, it's, we like Panama. I just don't want to be stuck in Panama. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there's a lot more rain. A lot more cloudy days. We can't sustain the boat 100% via sun and clear water under the boat. There's a lot of anchors that we just can't use the water maker because the seawater under the boat is foul. And there's not enough sun to support the boat. So we have to run the engine all the time. And I, you know, I hate that. <laughs> so we came to San Andres and luckily we got stuck in San Andres because we have everything we need here. Everything was within, you know, we can get to grocery stores, anything we need with a five to 10 minute walk from the dinghy dock here. We have sunshine about eight out of 10 days. The water under the boat is perfectly clear. So we can use the water maker any day we need without problem because the reef is right out front and fresh seawater rolls right in over the reef, right under the boat at about one and a half to two knots of current all day, every single day. Nice. So it's perfect. We're in 15 feet of water. We can actually go swimming anytime we want, anything like that. So you have a year, well, you're five months into this year to kill. And are you, are you looking at another pivot? Do you have, do you have kind of a, a, something mapped out in your mind, like how this changes your plans even more? Uh, well, it does change our plans and that, of course, it introduced complications for us just like everybody else. I mean, we have patrons that help support what we do, which is awesome. We wouldn't be nowhere without those for sure. We have YouTube paying us revenue for ads on the channel. And that, you know, 
almost makes up enough to keep us going 100% sustained. And that's the goal that you're reading on Patreon is to eventually become 100% sustained. I've always made up rest with my commercial video business because I make commercials like video commercials for uh, tourism related businesses, marinas, anything like that. Islands, private islands, like as you, hotels. As you stop around the world and where you're traveling, you just stop and, and do that. Yeah. Everywhere I've been for the last six years, I've always made commercials for these businesses and the commercials get better. My equipment gets better. My talents get better. My audience gets bigger. The commercials become worth more. And that's what sustained us. March. Boom. Commercial business gone. Yeah, I know. Stay on your boat. Go to shore once a week, get groceries, go back to your boat. That's it. Now who, who tells you that the government right now, or like, is there like a, uh, the equivalent of the Marine Patrol or somebody coming around telling you that in the Anchorage? Well, that's the rules. The, the Coast Guard is here circling and patrolling the island all the time. So they patrol the waters. But they don't like we're allowed to go to land, but it's up to them on land to monitor who's supposed to be there and who's not. So the police here, they would set up checkpoints that you have to have your ID with you, whether it's your government, you know, driver's license, passport, or whatever. And that ID, the last digit of your ID, whether it's one, two, three, four, whatever, reflects the day that you're allowed to be on the street. Hmm. If you're not on there, if you're out on the wrong digit, you go home. Wow. That was, you know, that's full lockdown. That's the same as everywhere else in the world, except here they had it organized very well. I'm very impressed with how they organized it here. We had no qualms with that whatsoever. We, we obeyed that and uh, we were happy that everybody else did. We would get our one day in the grocery store pick up everything we need. And we were lucky because we didn't need much because we were already getting prepared for the Pacific. So we had long-term storage provisions, everything already on board that we just keep accumulating when we were in Panama and when we were in here. So lots of stuff to keep us going, even for months if we needed to. Going to shore allowed us to get fresh fruits and vegetables because nice. the influx from land never never stopped. They still have ships come in every week that drop off food and supplies for the island. They still have cargo planes come in that drop off food because they had this regular influx of stuff because this island, I think it has maybe 30,000 population, but on an average day, it would have about 50,000 tourists all day, every day, all year round. So they have infrastructure for keeping this many people alive on this island. And the infrastructure was still there. Just nobody, no people were allowed to go back and right. forth. Right. So plenty of supplies and you're so able, we were lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And you're able to get shipments there too. Like, like if you were to order something from Amazon or you, you can just do yeah. that too. And we have a big shipment coming in this week, actually. Yeah. Tomorrow. And it's been one we've been building up, just having stuff sent because we have suppliers, sponsors, everybody wants to send us gear. We got a whole new electrical system upgrade coming in again on this one. So we just send it all to Miami and when it's all finished, then they put it on the ship, which they just did last Friday. And now the ship is on its way here, arrives here tomorrow morning. Great. And so then that's going to be a big project for you to like install that new electrical system while you're, while you're sitting. Yeah, that's going to be another on the list of projects. We have a ton of projects on the way already. Uh, the only problem is we can't bring in any crew to come and help with stuff. And there's no Marine facilities on this Island. So that's the only trade off. It's a great place to be, but you can't get your boat fixed here or hauled out or anything like that. So be very careful. <laughs> yeah, I guess you have to be very careful, but that's your intention kind of to, to stay there until, until you can make it um, to the Pacific. We were going to just get our packages this week and then start 
looking for a weather window to go back to Panama because Panama will allow us to come in. We just don't want to sit for months in Panama. Right. We got to do a 14-day quarantine. The question is, where do we do it? Because that means we can't leave the boat for 14 days. And the anchorage they want us to do it is really crappy. I mean, it's next to a really nice marina, but it's in the bay inside the Panama Canal where the water is shit. So you don't want to run the water maker. You're certainly not going to go swimming. It's not really enjoyable to be. There's other places we would rather be, but from a practicality standpoint, that's where we're going to have to go. So we want to be prepared for that in advance and have everything worked out so that once we're done quarantine, we've got it worked out where the boat's going to get the service and everything we need. Continue on with our plan. And we don't know if we're going to go back to Bocas for a little bit or just go through the canal because we want to spend part of the season on the Pacific side. But before I venture out into the Pacific, I got to be confident that we can sustain ourselves. And that's why that's why when when I lost the commercial business, the commercial side of my income, we just said, well, we have nothing else to do. We're going to focus 100% on YouTube because at least YouTube does pay something and the people love watching the videos. And I had no shortage of content. A lot of the other boats and channels were starting to run out of content because they were locked down and had nothing to talk about or nothing to do or show or whatever. Well, we got a ton of content. I had stuff in reserve. You know, we kept even our old series still going until probably well into almost April before we started transitioning. But once we got into real time, that's where people really started to pay attention because we went live real time. And then everybody's like, wow, okay, yeah, he's talking about yesterday, like for real yesterday, not three months ago yesterday. I mean, that live, that live thing, that could be another, another pivot for you. I mean, that people seem to really, really like that, especially with somebody like you that they identify with and they want to see exactly what's going on right now. That could be, that could be a whole new little venture. Yeah. I always wanted to be in live. It's much more challenging, but I really excel in live because I feel like I'm talking to them in real time. Not that it's going to be something I have to edit in six months and remember what was I thinking about when I made that, you know? Right. Right here, the editing is fresh. Now it's everything happens within a few days. I think the oldest video we've released has been maybe a week old at the most, just because everything we do, there's something going on every day. So there's always something to tell. If something breaks on the boat, we just immediately start working on it. We're just trained or in the mindset to. I've always been a bit of a teacher. Like I did offshore training for years, how to keep the boat going, all that kind of stuff. So for me, instead of talking to a person, now I'm just talking to the camera. All right, engine broke again. Let's go have a look at this, find out what's going on. Yeah. And I'll problem solve it in real time. Like, I don't know what's wrong with it. And we're just going to go find out. So let's go open it up and see what happens. And that's what we do. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I like those videos. Um, Cause you can, you can see the wheels turning and then the, you know, I've watched one where the pump was broken in the shower and then it, you know, you made an attempt to fix it and that didn't work. And so then you use a, you use a, uh, a cable tie and that didn't work. And then, then the hose busts and then, you know, it's like, okay, well now that looks like when I'm trying to fix my boat, like that, that's how it happens with me. Next thing you know, you've destroyed it, uh, in the process of trying to fix it. And then that's exactly what happened. You went and got another, or, or Maddie went and got another pump and, and reinstalled it. So. Yeah. And this is what I want people to realize. I don't want them to think that all this just happens naturally and organically. Oh, it's fixed. Okay. Yeah. That was easy. We said, Oh, it's broken. And look, okay. Do, do, do. There it's fixed. Yeah. It doesn't happen that way in real life. People deserve to know that. So that's why I show them. No, this is, this is the shit. <laughs> you, yeah. you better be here. Be prepared to get your hands dirty because if you're going to live on a boat, you can't call, like especially here. We've been here five months. There's nobody can fix anything on this boat on this Island. 
Yeah, There's eventually, nothing. eventually, everybody that that owns a boat, I guess, has to be able to improvise to an extent. If you're if you own a boat in Key West and and you're just there and there's a mechanic available all the time, that's one thing. But you know, that if you're a charter boat captain, like like I was, you know, you end up in the middle of the night with a flashlight in your teeth trying to fix a bilge pump or something. And that's, that's uh-huh. real life. That's where, that's why I like, I, I gravitated towards those videos. I'm like, check this out. He's, he's, he's fixing something and he tells right away. I don't know what's wrong with it. Like, okay, that's, that's super <laughs> real life. Um, one of the, you, you, you've got a really incredible story, man. Um, and, and you've been able to do, you've been able to do some really amazing things. And when I listen to you tell your story, it's kind of like, you know, it, it happened, but it doesn't seem like any of it happened really easily. And, and you, you know, you've pivoted many times and here you are, you know, living this, this life that, that is, is beautiful. I mean, you're, you're getting, it looks like you're getting the very best out of your life. Like you're living your best life. And I get emails from people all the time that are asking me, like, how do I be a fishing guide? How do I get into the fishing industry? How do I, how do I follow my dream of opening a retail shop? How do I do this? And I'll tell you what I tell them after I'd like to hear what you, what your advice would be. And I'm sure you're getting the same things. Like you live such a great life. How do I do that? What do you tell people? Yeah. (laughs) What do I tell people? Yeah. Well, I even just started to tell them that because I answered that question in a video a couple of videos ago and we did a Patreon thank you to all our new patrons and everything. And so I answered their questions. And yeah, I told them, number one, stop buying stupid shit. Number two, focus on your debts. If you're like me and 99% of the population, you've probably got debts. I mean, I'm almost out now, but I still carry the same mortgage on this. I started 15 years ago because I almost collapsed a couple of times, right? So, but in two years, I'm out finally. And I don't use credit cards or anything anymore for that. Just that reason. The, the, the last session taught me a lot. Credit, no, don't use it. If you can't afford to buy it, don't buy it. So for them, I tell them, if you already have credit, focus on one at a time. Just say, okay, this credit card, instead of buying that that I don't need and that that I don't need, I'm going to take that money and just put the balance down, 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 a little bit at a time until that one's empty. Keep it as a backup if you want. You have an emergency, but don't use it. And the next one, do the same thing. But you got to start there because that's your highest interest rate. And those are what most people are trained to operate or live with their debt as high as they possibly can living on the monthly payments that they can afford. That's why they'll sell you a car monthly payments. You used to be able to buy a car, a reasonably good car for $10,000. Now it's thirty five because they don't sell you the car. Nobody can afford to buy it. It's all monthly payments. It's no, what can not, we don't care what you can afford to buy. Right. How much can you afford monthly? Right. We'll take a percentage of your income. And sooner or later, that percentage is so big, you're not going anywhere. Right. You think you're free? Yeah, just try and just try and leave and go do what you want for six months and see what happens. Everything will get shut down. Your credit cards will get shut down. You lose your house. You lose your car. That's not freedom. Now, I, my definition of freedom has changed. I mean, freedom is something we like to think of being able to do what you want when you want, as long as you continue to do what you're told to do. And they train us from birth. Do your job, do it well, get paid, go home, kiss your wife, have dinner, watch a movie, go to bed tomorrow, get up and do it all over again. And we will give you anything you can afford within your monthly budget. 
And that's how most people are living nowadays. Yep. And it's unfortunate, but that's, you know, what our kids are growing into is they're not living with how much money can you make? How much can you afford to spend monthly? Everything is monthly payments, even your cell phone, data plans. I mean, data these days, people pay more for their cell phones on a monthly basis than I used to pay for my car payment. Right. I yep. mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And not even the data plan. You get you buy your cell phone on monthly payments too. Like the actual yeah. device. Like that thing costs like a thousand dollars now. It's crazy. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's crazy. So financial freedom is the key to 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 overall freedom in your in your opinion. Well, as long as you maintain a huge amount of debt, I mean, unless you have a huge income and a nest egg somewhere, you're not going anywhere unless you find a way to make a lot of money while you go. Yeah. I mean, if you can find a remote job that keeps paying you, that's why I was forced to. I had to, I couldn't just afford to, I'm not rich. I was never retired or anything. I'm a hard working, if I'm one of those guys who works hard for a living instead of, you know, work smart, that's the problem. <laughs> I took chances. I did things most people wouldn't do. And that's the only reason I'm doing it here differently than most people are. But I still live very similar to how they do. I still have monthly payments, people to look after, kids at home, all that kind of stuff. I've just found ways to support it while not being back there on land. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that it seems like you've, you've been able to do is once you get something going, you seem to be looking ahead or, you know, you, like you were, te- you were saying, you put all your eggs in one basket and then, you know, the recession hit and that kind of, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't really predict that. Like, uh, you know, I'm getting plenty of charters. I'm, I'm out, I'm out booking the, the booking agents and everything is great. And you were smart enough to have something else going on, like the YouTube, even if it's just a little bit to where that it's already started. And now you can grow that as you're seeing difficulties in these other areas. Now, now you've got the YouTube thing going really nicely. You've got Patreon um, and probably, I don't know, maybe some other things going on as well. As, as the COVID thing shuts down the commercial business, which is another one of your revenue streams. Mm-hmm. Like how important do you think it is? And obviously you think it's very important to constantly be looking for new revenue streams to maintain this freedom that you have. Well, I think it's very important because any of them can collapse at any time. If a major recession hits, I fully expected Patreon to collapse for us because I knew people would have other priorities. Yeah, now, I understand that. And Patreon, you know, we, we lost maybe 25% in Patreon. And I was very surprised it wasn't more, but obviously not as many people are as affected at that level that I, as I originally thought, but we're also, Patreon is a great thing for us because it's people that want to see us keep going because we are their release, especially now that they're stuck at home. And the only thing they have is watching YouTube and they get to choose what they want to watch. They are choosing more and more to watch what we have to show. And they're rewarding us with their views, with their comments, with their shares. And some of them on Patreon with, you know, two, three dollars, four dollars, five dollars, doesn't matter. People only think, you know, well, it's only two dollars, but you put a thousand people together and that's two thousand dollars. So that's a big help in keeping us going. So we're focused on trying to give people what they want. If they want to learn more, then I'll teach them more. They just want to see more and I show them more. They want more bikinis. Well, I do what I can, but you know, there's only so many going around. But the fact is that we want 
to stay in touch with them and know them also. And what do they want to see us do? Do they want to see us go to the Pacific? Okay, that's why I keep telling them if they do, this is what we need in order to be able to do that. I mean, I can't just venture off into the Pacific in the no man's land when I live on a monthly revenue stream. Right. If the revenue stream collapses, we're going to be in the middle of the Pacific with nothing and I lose everything again. It's a gamble and not worth, it's not worth risking. So at some point we'll decide, okay, it is worth the risk. Uh, but yeah, I had to figure out where are we going to replace this commercial video income from? And that's why I just stopped and said, okay, we focused entirely on YouTube. And I started publishing in real time, averaging two videos per week. I mean, several months, we published 10 to 12 videos a month. That's a huge amount of work. Mm -hmm. But I don't have any other job right now. So that's why I said, I'm going to put my time into that. Because that will show rewards. YouTube rewards us. We get rewarded with more viewers. We're getting more view time. You know, we had like 45 million, 45 million minutes of watch time last month. That was a record for the channel. And we appreciate that. That's people choosing, you know, across 2.2 million viewers watching over eight minutes of each video every month. Yeah. Or every, every across that many millions of views. I was like, wow, that's, I'm very happy with that. Cause our average view time, I mean, YouTube always said from the beginning, if you can keep people's attention for more than three minutes, you're doing awesome. Wow. Cause most people they'll watch something for three minutes and okay, next gone. Yeah. And they're sitting there with the, with the mouse in their hand or the, you know, the, the touchpad, they can click away from it so fast and so easy. It's not, you know, it's even, well, yeah. it's a little longer process to grab the remote control and change the channel. But on YouTube, it's fickle, man. People, people can change that immediately. Yeah. And it's hard to keep people's attention. You've got to be doing something that they really want to pay attention to or they're gone. Yeah. So, you know, my average video for the longest time was 15, 16 minutes. I just, you know, that's just the most comfortable time I found that people would stay engaged with it. And we had an average of seven, eight minutes, like 50% view time on those videos. Now we've got videos that I've started putting out extended versions that are just like a full day in the life of, and people are like, yes, yeah. <laughs> we love that. Keep doing that. But that's a lot of work too. I mean, those videos are 35, 45, some of them 50 minutes long, but you know, it's just less cutting. I leave more material in that's just life in the day. Yeah. And some people enjoy it. Some people are like 50 minutes, you crazy. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> they won't even watch it because it's 50 minutes. Right. Well, but those aren't the dedicated fans. So we cater to the dedicated ones and the rest, you know, they'll come and watch when they want, if they want, we can't please everybody. That's a fact, you know, that already. Yeah. So no, you can't please everybody, but you are doing a great job of, of, bringing together a, a group of people that really likes what you do and likes to watch what you're, what you're putting out and wants to support your, wants to support your, your goals. And it's very cool. It's very, very cool. And you got a great story, man. So for everyone that's out there, this, I mean, I don't know that, have you put this backstory out there of how you, how you got that to where you are today? No, I'd never really get too much into the history of it. For me, that's in the past. I mean, I started writing the little bio. But I never finished that either because, you know, right where I left off is where it starts leading yeah. into YouTube and on to that next life and next right. business and all that stuff. But um, no, I don't know. YouTube just kind of has its own flow and it stays in the present. I find everybody likes it better in the present. Yeah. 
every, I get lots of people ask me, what's your story, man? We got to know how'd you get here, all that. Yeah. But it would be a lot of work to go back. That'd be a video that would take months to put together, trying to collect all the information, unless it's just me like now talking to you about it and just right. voice, you know? But, yeah. Well, that, that, uh, that's going to be something that your, that your people are going to really want to see. And, and you got a very interesting story. We didn't even get to you being a, uh, a, a costume designer for the, the platinum blonde rock band, which I found incredibly interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. my first business right out of high school. Yeah. That's where it started for me. That's where I realized the power of words on a piece of paper because I was 17 years old and I had already made the connection with the group because I just made that jacket with a friend of mine and they got us, that got us noticed. But then I wanted to do it as a business and the government was offering grants to kids and, you know, coming out and like teenagers, young adults, whatever, wanting to start young entrepreneurs, basically. And again, I went through that process three times. They said, no, thanks anyway. No, <laughs> thanks. I kept rewriting it and sending it back. I said, but what about this? I've got this. I've got these people. I, got that. I made these connections. I can do this. And finally, they just said, okay, you got it. Nice. And that's what's, that's my first thing right out of high school. So I got the grant. Then I went to all the car companies, same thing. I needed a car because the band I was working with was in Toronto and I lived in uh, Kitchener. So it was an hour drive away and I needed to go see them. So I needed a car. I wasn't looking for a, you know, fancy Porsche or anything, but I was looking for anything I could get. I ended up with a Chevy Cavalier, brand new 1985. It was the first one that said, yes. Again, I had like five companies. No, no, no. Got the GMAC. They said, yes, you got it. So I got the car. I was in business. I used the grant from the government to put the first couple of months payments on a three-story townhouse with a friend of mine. I took over the whole basement, built my shop down there, bought all the sewing gear because I was making the clothes, designing them, making them everything from scratch. And yeah, that was where it all started. But then after a couple of years of that, that's when I just got tired of winter time and moved to Florida. <laughs> That's awesome. Similar. Story. I went to Florida originally. Yeah. I went to Florida originally to expand in the fashion business. That was my goal. I went with my buddy that I started the fashion business with and we went down to, it was my buddy, Scott Grolo from many, many years ago. I haven't talked to him in years, but wow. We went down to Florida just to check out the fashion scene as Miami. Well, that's gotta be the head of everything. Right. Ended up, I never did get into fashion down there. I ended up in audio, like in the electronics and studying that before I came back to Canada and started my second business. So one, one thing led to another, just steps along the way. Yeah. Nice. Well, I have a similar story of how I ended up in Key West. I tried to spend a winter in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and it was far <laughs> too cold. And I went as far <laughs> south as you could get all the way to the southernmost point and stayed there. So I, yeah. I can, I can uh, appreciate your, your intolerance of the cold. I have, I have the same thing. I can go visit, but I don't really, I don't really want to stay there that long. That's, that's exactly what I said when I was that age. I said, I want to go as far south as I can go without falling off the land. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised we didn't meet in <laughs> Key West. <laughs> we would have met yeah. at the southernmost point. Hey man, what's up? Man? Um, yeah, I ended up spending a lot of time down there. I loved it. And even yeah. after I moved back to Canada, I still used to go down four times a year for a couple of weeks at a time. I'd take my car down because I love driving. That was a big time, big favorite hobby because I had the stereo in it, you know, I'd zip down through the Virginia mountains, love those winding roads. I always had sports cars. Mm -hmm. It was a great drive. And I'd end up down in Florida and spend a couple of weeks hanging out with my friends. All my suppliers for the car audio business were down there. So I'd load up the car full of stuff and drive back to Canada. Yeah. Nice. 
Nice. Well, you've been able to make a great life for yourself and, uh, and, and obviously you've made some good decisions and, and some good pivots and stuff like that. And you're giving some good advice to people that, that want to do something kind of the same that, that are really afraid to. I think the financial well, freedom part is, is the best advice you could give anyone. I've had a lot of help along the way and I'm certainly not financially free yet either. I'm still working towards it, but that's why people ask me and I tell them, I mean, I have my family. I was lucky that to have them to fall back on when times were really down and out. So I thank my family every day for that and all the support and just encouraging me to keep going. You know, yeah. the, the partner that I took on in this business that helped me get here in the first place, Dr. Charles Vanderwater, I thank him for his support, you know, because without that, I probably would have found a way to do it, but not nearly as well, as easy as we did. Having somebody who just says, yeah, here, you got this much money to keep you going for the month and everything to get started. That was a big, uh, a big help along the way, for sure. Having my kids along, you know, that's always get me going because I want to make sure they're looked after as well. I don't want to disappoint them. I mean, that was the reason I had to start with a big mortgage on this boat is because I wanted to make sure they were left behind in a comfortable situation. Their house was paid for. They didn't have to worry about losing their house or their home. If my, you know, bold move collapsed. Yeah. So if I went down, I didn't want to take them with me. So that's why I just signed it all off on the bank and accepted responsibility there for it all on my own. Yeah. Well, so no, I nice. got a lot of people to be thankful for as well. And now I'm thankful for the YouTube audience. They are the ones that are keeping me going because they seem to like what I have to show them, what I've done, what I've planned to do and, you know, what I might do with them in the future. So, yeah, well, they love it. Thanks to all. Well, tell everybody that is not familiar with your YouTube channel and your Patreon and everything else, how they could, how they could find you, support you, follow you. Well, we just rebranded everything. I mean, we talked about it when I started Ambient Real Life, but that just used to confuse people because it's not really tied with the sailing sophisticated ladies. So I just rebranded everything. So our Instagram is now Instagram Sailing Sophisticated Lady. And Madeleine has been running that and she does a phenomenal job because that's something I don't really have a lot of time for and I'm not really that much into pictures. I'm focused on videos. So she loves the picture aspect. She looks after Instagram so they can go and say hi to her hair and her there and she loves to hear from them. So that's always nice. Uh, YouTube is the same thing. YouTube slash, sorry, YouTube slash sailing sophisticated lady. Patreon is the same thing. If somebody wants to throw in a dollar or two to help us keep going as they like what we're doing and want us to keep going, sailing sophisticated lady. Um, yeah, everything is the same. We're just setting up the new website now. My son is actually building our new website. So we're about to close Ambient Real Life and we've moved everything over to sailingsophisticatedlady.com. So everything will be focused in there. And that's where we're going to have a lot of real-time stuff. I mean, I've set up a huge security system on the boat because, well, I need to protect my stuff. And we have eight cameras of which I'm going to put four of the outdoor cameras live on the website. Cause nice. one thing people always loved when I was chartering was getting live images from a webcam on the bow. So I'm going to do that again for our YouTube audience so that they can check in and see where we are, what the boat is, you know, what's like around the boat where we are, and what the weather's like. We're going to have real time weather reporting from the boat uh, because obviously we collect all of our energy from nature. So I'm trying to get people to think in that mindset at the same time and by showing them connections with our immediate weather around the boat and how we predict weather where we're going using predict wind software and all that kind of stuff, how that all ties back to how much we actually produce on the boat for energy. So I get all this kind of energy 
feedback from my systems that show me exactly how much sun we had, how much wind we had, all this stuff. And I want to put those graphs available for people to view on the, on the website. Nice. So they can actually tune in and see how our immediate weather translates to what we generated that day, what we consumed, because it shows our consumption, because we've converted the whole boat to electric, got rid of gas. I mean, we still have gas stove as a backup, but all of our stove, cooking, microwave, everything is all electric, all run from the sun. Wow. All of our drinking water comes from the sun, you know, from the sea, but it's desalinated by a solar powered desalinator. And these are all products I've been working with from people who send them to us that want us to test them. And, you know, I usually, if I see something I really want, I'll go and ask them, hey, can we do something? But sometimes they just send me stuff and I'm like, wow, I wish I'd known about this earlier. I would have asked, you know, because yeah. there's some really cool stuff available. There is. I, I, one of your videos, you went to the gas dock and you said something like, I don't know how long it was. I have it in my notes somewhere, but it said you had burned um, just a really tiny amount of gas over an incredibly long period of time. And that, and you were attributing that to the solar, um, obviously. Yeah. But I can't. Yeah, I think I, that I video, that it. was Guatemala, I think. Yeah. It was like, I don't know, very few gallons of gas. And well, we've been here in lockdown now. And this is why I say we're thankful and lucky that we've been in lockdown here in San Andres with this environment. Because in the five months that we've been here, I've checked my hour meter the other day and we've burned a total of six gallons of diesel fuel. Wow. In five months, you've burned six gallons of diesel fuel. Five months, six gallons. And so, this is, I mean, that's, that's such a small amount. It's for something obviously very crucial. What, what does the diesel run on your boat at this, at this stage? It's just there as a backup power generator for the batteries. So if we don't have enough sun, we have to run the engine because it has dual high output alternators on it. Right. And those alternators charge the batteries. So if we run low, low in power and there's not going to be enough sun for the, we know it's going to be cloudy tomorrow or anything, we have to run the engine for a couple hours, few hours, whatever, just to bring the power back up a little bit so that we still have electricity. Just for our basics. I mean, when it's not sunny, we trim down. You know, uh, we don't use extraneous things that we don't need to. But when we have lots of sun and we have more power than we could use, we turn down the fridge temperature. We crank up, you know, the the freezer temperature, we turn on the electric fans, we turn the water maker on, we start doing laundries. We got a laundry machine here now nice. and that kind of stuff. But you just use the power, even ice makers. So we have an ice maker that's fully solar powered. Wow. We only use it when our batteries are already full and we're wasting power from the sun. Right. We turn on the ice maker, the water maker, anything else that we need. That's cool. And then you got the whole thing going with your plants, which, uh, which is really cool. I see some in the background right there, but you're growing stuff all over your boat. And uh, even stuff that you can eat, like the basil. Um, so it's really cool. You got a whole green. I mean, the boat is is completely self-contained, really, for the most part. I mean, how big is your fuel tank? That diesel tank. How much does it? How much could that hold? It holds 105 gallons, and we have three or four jerry cans that we keep as backup that hold five gallons each. So, but it's let's say a 20 gallon reserve. So and that would no I mean, no question that you could go for as long as you wanted to as long as you had sun right i mean like if you had a oh, we can go a long time yeah it's incredible it's awesome man totally off the grid that's amazing and we we don't use gas anything for anything anymore other than the barbecue because propane as we get into other areas of the world becomes very hard to find and the bottle sizes are all different fittings are different it becomes very complicated if, if you can even find it <clears throat> now i don't really want to give up my gas barbecue it's the one thing i really enjoy using yeah. 
but I've, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm going to find somebody out there who's going to help me work on this idea. I've already refined it to the point I know I can generate the gas, but I'm going to use, start using excess solar power build a little hydrogen generator that's going to extract hydrogen from seawater using solar power that's left over and wasted anyway. Collect that and store it, make a new burner for the barbecue and use the barbecue as a hydrogen barbecue. Wow, man, don't blow yourself up. Sounds dangerous. No, (laughs) no different than propane really. In fact, it's more safe than propane, but it's, it's, it doesn't have the density of propane, so it's too expensive for commercial use in most of the world right now. They haven't got it to that level yet. But here, we don't have to pay for a major production facility. We don't have to pay for a major storage. We don't have to pay for major transportation to get it here. Those are things all eliminated from the cost when you use it on a boat that lives in the water. Yeah. You're surrounded by the energy already. All you have to do is physically extract it from the seawater. It's there. I mean, H2O, hydrogen, to o like two molecules of hydrogen, one oxygen. Yeah. Simple electrolysis, you can extract the hydrogen, contain it. It doesn't have to be a ton of it because you can make it any day you want. You know, this, it's yeah. always there. You just use extra sun. You make enough for a couple of barbecues and you're good to go. Just make some more when you need it. Man, that's But no, awesome. I think that's going to be a cool little idea. I'd love to look at it for a means of propulsion uh, to replace the diesel or maybe even offset the diesel. Cause I know if they've, they've made diesel engines that have been made a lot more efficient through the addition of hydrogen into the combustion mixture. So that's a possibility also, but really I would like to replace the diesel at some point. I'd love to go electric, but it's not there yet. And it's way too expensive. I mean, this size of boat would need a, a 60 kilowatt motor, which is going to be like 20, $30,000. And it needs like $40,000 worth of batteries that would yeah. run it for maybe six hours. But then you still have to replace that energy from somewhere. Where does it come from? You can't make enough from the sun on a boat this size. So you'd still need an electric gen, like a generator in order to replenish the batteries. So I don't, there's not enough benefit to doing that for me right now. So I stay with the hydrogen or sorry, with the, the diesel. But I do look at putting some kind of an extra propulsion, like a small electric motor that's just enough to keep the boat going at two to three knots based on the solar system that we have. So that when we're stuck in the doldrums crossing the Pacific or anything like that, we can still keep moving. Whereas normally you'd be stuck unless you up your diesel fuel. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, man. I think you'll do it. I, that's what I, that's my, <laughs> that's my uh, forecast. I think you'll, I think you'll make it happen. Well, Rick, man, well, I'm I talking really... about it. Usually I'm already on my way to doing it if I'm yeah, talking about that's what it. I, figure. Been... I figure it's halfway <laughs> done right now. <laughs> well, Getting listen, there. man, it's been a great uh, opportunity to talk to you and meet you and, and just kind of catch up on, on who you are. And so, yeah, uh, nice to meet you as well, Tom. I appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Please tell Maddie and the crew that everyone from the mainland and, and uh, YouTube says hello, and uh, they'll be looking forward to, uh, to hearing this story. Yeah, this right is there? Madeline. She just got here, so that is just bring her in to say hi. 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 How are you? This nice is, to meet you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, everybody loves you on YouTube. Uh, I, I look in the comments, and they they definitely love you. Oh, she can't hear you, but I'll pass it on. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds great. Rick and Maddie, thank you very much. I hope you guys have uh, fair winds, as you say, and um, and have a have an awesome rest of the day. Thank you very much, sir. All right. I'll let you know when this is out. See you.